in the world and with man, he has ordained that free will would be a, a fundamental element within uh, his relationship with us and in what makes us what we are as human beings. We see that in the Garden of Eden, God planted two trees and he gave to man a choice when he was placed there within the garden. He could partake of the tree of life and in obedience he could abstain from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or in his free will, he could choose to disobey God and if he wanted, he could partake of the tree for which God forbade him. In the old covenant that God gave through Moses, the law whereby man could be again brought into a relationship with God under that old system, God gave provision for man to live under a law and prosper should he choose to obey it. But again, the choice was with man whether or not he would walk in God's commands and in his ways or whether he would not. Under the new covenant, we understand that it is a completely different way wherein God relates to man. However, though the work is completed in Christ and that it isn't our works that save us, the choice still lies with us whether we will accept the terms of his salvation and receive it or whether we will deny it and walk according to our own rule. God does not circumvent our ability or our uh, responsibility to choose. We understand that the Bible is filled with warnings and admonitions from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and God always gives us the choice of whether or not we will follow. And at no point in our walk with him or in our relationship does he rob us or strip us of that uh, powerful thing that we have that is our will. It's a part of what we are. Now, with that ability of free will and that privilege of free will, we also have a responsibility because we live with the consequences of the choices that we make. If we, as parents, empower our children to make good choices, we hope that they will because we know that the choices are going to have outcomes, whether good or bad, based upon what they do. And God does the same thing for us. And so God lays out in his word instructions, admonitions, and warnings. And then he gives to us the choice of whether or not we will give heed to those things and obey or whether or not we will rebel and go against. And so what we have before us tonight in Luke chapter 12 is that we have six warnings that are given to us by Jesus himself concerning our lives in this world as Christians. And they are warnings that for us demand a response. We all have the choice of whether or not we will take heed to the things that Jesus says or if we will ignore them. And consequently, we, as we listen to his words and then either take heed or ignore, we will experience either blessing or the natural consequences that follow. And so six warnings that are given to us. Um, the first is given in the first three verses, and we covered that last week, and so we won't revisit that again. But the first warning given there um, to us, Jesus said uh, in verse um, one, he or yeah, this is at the end of verse one, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And so the warning given to us uh, to, 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 to be careful of the tendency that we could have to put ourselves forward as something other than what we truly are uh, inside. 
and we talked about that again. You can re review that teaching if you missed that uh, and, and want to hear it. But we'll move right into our second warning tonight, picking up in verse 4 uh, that Jesus gives here. And, and the second warning that Jesus gives is a warning concerning the fear of God and the fear of man. And so read with me in verse 4. He says, And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have mo no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you, here's the warning, whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value uh, than many sparrows. And of course, the fear not is in the context of fearing man. And so the first of, uh, side of this warning that Jesus gives is he tells us here that we are not to fear man. Now, the word that is used there that Jesus employs when he says fear in the Greek language, it's a word that means reverential obedience. What that means is that we live under the iron fist or under the fear or the reverential obedience of another human being as our ultimate authority. Now, I don't know if this is part of human nature or if it's just a part of human culture that we have a tendency to live this way. I mean, we grow up and we have parents and teachers, other human beings that we are brought up under reverential obedience to them. And then immediately we move into a world where there are employers and there are governing authorities wherein we are compelled to walk in obedience to them and in reverential obedience that we're called to fear them. And the world is very careful at every step of our walk through it to keep us in a place where we have somewhat of a fear of man or a reverential obedience to man. And now Jesus is coming to us and what Jesus is saying is do not fear man. And he's lifting us and elevating us unto a higher fear or a higher sphere or plane of reverential obedience. And he calls us into then the fear of God. Now, I don't know why, but we do this in our culture. We place an undeserved value upon people in terms of both how they can potentially harm us and also how they might potentially help us. And because of the harm that man can do to other men, and because of the help that man can give to other men, we have a tendency to fear man. Well, if I don't do what I'm told, I can be harmed. Or if I don't do what's expected of me, I will not be helped. And so the fear of man creeps into our existence and our relationships with other people. But when a person comes to Christ, they immediately begin to realize that there is a primary authority that supersedes the authority of man, both in terms of the harm that can be done and in terms of the help that can be given. See, if God is going to harm us, the harm that God can do to us is much greater than the harm that man can do. Because although man can afflict us in the here and now or in a temporary nature, man cannot touch the eternal. But the pain that God can inflict goes deeper than just the here and now and the temporary. What he can do can cast us into hell for eternity. And so we recognize that the fear of God is a higher fear. We also recognize that vain is the help of man. 
that although people can be in a position to help us and to put us into a position or keep us in a position, whether it's a position of favor just within our family or whether it has to do with our employment or in society, ultimately, at the end of the day, man cannot really help us in the things that we need, but God can. That's why he finishes the segment by saying, hey, are not five sparrows sold for two farthings and yet your father aren't you much greater than them? He says, the number of the hairs on your head are all numbered. And I love that verse. It's one of my favorite truths about God is that he knows the number of hairs that are on our head. Because what that tells us automatically is that first of all, God knows us better than we know ourselves. How many of us here know how many hairs are on our head? I certainly don't. I just know that there's less of them every day. Actually, that's probably not true. They spring up in new places, you know, But furthermore, it's absolutely certain that there is no other person on the planet that knows how many hairs are upon my head, but God tells me that he does. And so therefore, I'm called to fear him and not to fear man. The Bible says that the fear of man brings a snare. It's Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. But whoso trusts in the Lord shall be safe. And that's an important thing to do, to understand and to recognize In Isaiah chapter 51, through the prophet Isaiah, God says this concerning the fear of man. He says, I, even I, God speaking, am he that comforteth you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man that shall die and of the son of man which shall be made as grass? And forgettest the Lord thy maker and has stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and has feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor, as if he were ready to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile hasteneth that he may be loose, and that he should not die in the pit, nor that his bread should fail. But I am the Lord thy God that divided the sea, whose waves roared, the Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in thy mouth and I've covered thee in the shadow of my hand that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say unto Zion, you are my people. And so it tells us, shows us the heart of God towards those of us that would give ourselves to a fear of man and say, well, God, I have to uh, do what they're told and I must uh, live under the cruel bondage of being in that fear. If you've ever lived in the fear of man, then you understand how cruel that can be. If you've ever been in a relationship or in a situation where you have to think through every word that you're going to say seven times in seven ways before you say it because of how it will be uh, heard or construed or how it will be held against you, that's a terrible way and a terrible place to live. Or to have to live your life constantly in someone else's brain as to how they're going to interpret everything that you do because uh, of the fear that you have towards those men. It's a horrible way uh, to live. And it's an unfitting burden that's placed upon us. The second element of this is that the fear of man is to replace by the fear of God. If you find a person that doesn't fear man and doesn't fear God, what you have is a train wreck waiting to happen. And when Jesus tells us that we are not to fear man that cannot do anything to our soul, he's not saying that we're not to fear anything, but that that fear is to be translated and turned into a fear of God. And once that happens, it will have its proper way, its proper interpretation. The Bible elevates this thing that we call the fear of God. I want to read to you just a couple of scriptures. Psalm chapter 111, verse 10. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs days, long life. Proverbs 14, verse 26. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Proverbs 15, 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. Proverbs 16, verse 16. By the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 23. The fear of the Lord tendeth to life, and he that has it shall abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. In Proverbs chapter 22, verse 4, by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. And of course, when we read uh, Isaiah chapter 11 and what's described for us there is the sevenfold working of the Holy Spirit within the life of a believer. Uh, The seventh thing that is listed there is that he is the spirit that brings to us the fear of the Lord. And so for us as Christians to walk in a reverential obedience to God is a very critical and important part of our safety and our spiritual uh, maturity as Christians that we walk in it. Now, once we do that, God is going to bring into our hearts the proper place that we see men. And therefore, we'll have the proper respect and obedience for our parents and for our bosses and for our governing authorities because we're walking in obedience to God. But when those things are misconstrued and brought out of context, it brings our lives out of balance uh, in that. I believe that one of the greatest uh, lacking things in the professing church today is the lack of a healthy fear of God. Christians, by and large today, have left off to recognize the great severity and the great power and the great awesomeness that God is. And I think that we're a bit too flippant as Christians uh, in the way that we respond to and walk with God in fearful obedience. But Jesus tells us that we're to fear God. The third warning that's given to us in this chapter, it's in verses 8 through 12. It's a warning concerning procrastination about making a decision for Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 8. Jesus said, also, I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the son of man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denies me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. And whosoever shall speak a word against the son of man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. And when they bring you unto the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers, take ye no thought how or what thing you shall answer or what you shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what you ought to say. The Bible teaches us that ever since Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and allowed sin into his existence and into the existence of man, that every descendant of Adam since then was born into this condition that we call sin. And the reason why we sin and the reason why the world is the way that it is is because of the condition of sin that exists within us. Well, God sent a law through the hand of Moses 
And when God sent the law, what he did is that he showed us by our failure to keep those laws that we are in fact sinners. And that's the reason why we cannot keep the law. But without the law, we would never know that we're sinners. We would just do what we do by nature and we would just think that's the way everything is supposed to be. But by God giving us the law through Moses, the Ten Commandments, it reveals that there's something wrong with us because we know that we're not supposed to lie, but yet we lie. We know that we're not supposed to covet, but yet we covet. We know that we're supposed to worship God, but yet we're prone to idolatry. And what the law was intended to do, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, is that it reveals to us that we're fallen and that we have a sinful nature. And so therefore, we have a problem because we are assigned or resigned to death because of our sin. And we're unable to meet the requirements of God's holy and righteous law that we might be saved. However, God didn't want us to die in our sins or to remain in a state of separation from him. And so what he did, which was his plan from the very beginning, is that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, into the world, who as the son of God and the son of man lived an absolutely perfect life. He was born of a virgin, which meant that he didn't have the tainted blood that Adam had that was already corrupted by sin. It was a fresh batch that had a fresh chance. And thus Jesus walked through this life, going through everything that we go through, being tempted in every way that we are tempted. And yet in all of that, he never sinned, not a day in his life, not in his mind or with his hands, but he lived in absolute perfection. And that was the plan. But it didn't end there because the way that he died is that he absorbed in his death upon the cross the full penalty of the wrath of God for all of the sins of man. And the Bible says that he, Jesus, who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God even in him. And the Bible says for what the law could not do in that it was weak because of our flesh, God in sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh by putting his son upon the cross. And so God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him and put their faith in him for their salvation that they would not perish, but that they would have everlasting life. That is the gospel and the plan of God for salvation. And so when a man or a woman, you and I come to Christ and we confess that we're sinners and we receive his forgiveness, that is what Jesus is talking about here when he says, they that confess me before men will also be confessed before the angels and my father, which is in heaven. So to receive Christ and his salvation apart from the works of the law is to make a confession of Christ. Now, when a person hears that message about what Jesus did, it's almost an automatic for them to begin to question the verity of Jesus himself. Well, who was Jesus? Was he, in fact, who the Bible puts forth that he was? Was he the son of God? Did he really walk on water? 
Did he really multiply loaves and fishes and raise the dead and cleanse lepers and do the things that the Bible said and ultimately was he raised again on the third day? Is all of that true? And in a person's inquisition or in, inquiring about whether or not these things are true, they may, in a point, in a, in a place in time, they may speak words against the Son of Man in their desire to just put Jesus with all the other religious charlatans that existed throughout the ages. Well, he was just another prophet. He was just another phony. He was a good teacher, but he's not who he claimed to be. And by saying that, in fact, you are saying that Jesus is a liar because he claimed himself to be Lord and he claimed himself able to give eternal life. And if he couldn't do that, then he was a lying lunatic. And thus people speak evil things against the Son of Man every day. But Jesus says here that that will be forgiven. But understand this and tune in here. If you've tuned out, come back. That God in his wisdom has employed another agent to come into the world that would go beyond just the hearing of the ear through the testimony of a man and that underneath the surface of the skin, the Holy Spirit, which is the essence of God himself, would go alongside, inside a person and begin to convince them about the truth of the testimony concerning Jesus Christ. And so a person hears about Jesus and the claim that he can forgive their sin and that they can be saved and that he rose from the dead. And they can put it off because they don't trust the credibility of the messenger. But the Bible says that God, the Holy Spirit, is faithful to come alongside that person and he begins to knock upon that heart. He begins to bring conviction within that life. He begins to uncover the flaws that they have. He begins to question them as they lay on their pillow at the night and begin to ask them the question, well, how is your method working for you? What's your life and hope in? And is there credence to this? And he begins to whisper to that life that Jesus is real, Jesus is real, Jesus is real. Now man has a choice. Because though he can push off the testimony of man, Man has to do something with the testimony of the internal voice of the Holy Spirit that's speaking within. But the Bible says that our tendency is that we love darkness rather than light because we're inclined by sin to do evil. So here's what men do. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. It says there, it says that for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That's King James. In the New King James, it says, suppress the truth or hold down the truth because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God has showed it unto them. And so because man doesn't want to come to the light, he suppresses and he holds down the truth that he tries to make himself unaccountable for it. Also, man puts off dealing with the conviction that is within In Acts chapter 24, the apostle Paul was standing before a governor whose name was Felix. And it tells us in verse 24, it says that after certain days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he, Paul, reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, go thy way for this time, for when I have a convenient season, I will call for you. And so this man who heard the gospel and the words of the gospel shook him so that he trembled even on the inside. He then looked 
at Paul and he said, I can't deal with this now, but I'll deal with it later. But he never did. And he never called for the Apostle Paul again. And we don't know what happened uh, ultimately to this man, Felix. And for a person to suppress the truth of the voice of the Spirit within their life and to never deal with the fact that Jesus is who the Bible says he is and that God the Holy Spirit confirms that in every life is to blaspheme and to deny the Holy Spirit. And for a person to do that unto the day of their death, that is the unpardonable sin. That sin cannot be forgiven. In John chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, Jesus spoke there and he said concerning the work of the Holy Spirit, he said that when he is come, it's verse eight, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me. So the Holy Spirit will come into the world and he will bring conviction in the heart and the heart of the unbeliever. He says that he will reprove the world of sin of righteousness and of judgment. And here's the sin that the Holy Spirit will convict concerning, that they believe not in me. That's the only sin that can keep a person from going to heaven eternally, is not professing faith in Jesus Christ because they suppress the voice of the Holy Spirit within them. And so to deny the work of the Spirit within a life uh, and bringing them to salvation is to deny the Holy Spirit. There are many people that put off making that decision or they suppress the truth of the voice of the Spirit, whether it's because they love sin or because of the changes that it will cost as they know that will be brought upon their lives or because they just love darkness or because they just hate God or whatever the case might be, people put off that decision. And to put off that decision is a very foolish and a very dangerous thing to do because you're flirting with eternal damnation. The Bible says that when the day of the Lord comes, when the judgment of God is poured forth upon this world, it's Joel chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. The Bible says that there will be multitudes still in the valley of decision, that they haven't yet made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And the only reason that they haven't is because they haven't made up their mind yet. It isn't that they've necessarily denied. They just haven't come to accept and to receive. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, that today is the day of salvation, that if today you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness in those days. And when the Spirit comes alongside, and when he begins to tug and to say, you need to listen because this is serious and this is real, that's the time that you respond and you obey. And so Jesus warns concerning the tendency to uh, put off this decision. The third warning that Jesus gives um, in this chapter, he, he begins in verse 13 and it goes all the way down through verse 34 and it concerns uh, man's tendency to be covetous. Or, you got to forgive my, I can't say words, pronunciation, pronunciation. I, I always say covetous and someone always comes up and says, it's covetous. I've been doing that word covetous because righteous, you know, it's just in there. So forgive me for saying covetous. I know it's covetous, you know, but that's the warning that Jesus gives. It says in verse 13, it says that one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. Now, put yourself in this scene for just a minute. Jesus is teaching. He's on a roll. He's going along. There's an innumerable multitude of people thronging him, listening to his words. And this man's situation is just that important that he needs to come up to Jesus in this context 
And he wants Jesus now to become an arbitrator over the will and cause the brother of this man to give part of the inheritance to him. And so Jesus responds in verse 14 and he said unto him, man, I don't know what kind of tone of voice that was in, but he said, man, who made me a judge or a divider or an arbitrator over you? And then he turns it into a teaching moment as he turns to the multitude and it says that he said unto them, take heed, beware, and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. So this man comes to Jesus with a strange request and Jesus turns it to us and he says to us, by the Holy Spirit, beware of of covetousness for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses the word covetous you could write the word greed nearby it means to be seeking satisfaction or to be seeking a sense of well-being or life in material or temporal things and so jesus gives the command then he illustrates it with a parable in verse 16 it says that he spoke a parable unto them saying, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? And so is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And so Jesus gives this parable. And in this parable, there is a man who had a career. And the result of that career is that he was blessed and that he was bountiful. He had enough money for him to be able to sustain himself, but he came to a point where that career had run its course. It was all over now and there was no more ground for him to sow and reap. There was no more room within his barns for him to bestow his crops and his goods. And so he came to a point where he could no longer invest and harvest in the field that he was in and continue to make money. And so he comes to a crossroads within his life. And he's at a point now where he's free if he wants, because he's got abundance and he's been blessed. He could invest himself into the things of God. He could make himself rich eternally. But instead of doing that, because he's uh, he's afforded the opportunity, he instead decides to start a second career to create stupid wealth so that he can then have an even easier retirement. And so a little bit later in his life, he can say, okay, now... My soul is satisfied. I can take my ease and I can eat, drink, and be merry. And so the man's current position is that he's rich and successful, but he's not satisfied. And his goal is to bring himself to a place of satisfaction based upon his accomplishment and based upon his attainment of material possessions. Now, Jesus' response to this man's plans to not become rich towards God, but to pad his retirement all that much more, is that he calls him a fool. 
Heaven's response to that mentality is that that's a foolish mentality. And here's why. Number one, because this man wasted his life living to acquire what he cannot keep and what ultimately cannot satisfy. And then secondly, that the reason why he feels unsatisfied is because he has sought to satisfy the longing of the soul with things that were not designed and that ultimately cannot satisfy the soul, which ultimately needs to be satisfied. How many of you, like me, have ever come to the end of a day wherein you've spent an entire day working on something? I mean, giving yourself in every fiber of yourself to something, and at the end of the day, it came out that it was totally a waste. You know, whether you were like taking care of some administrative function or paperwork or trip to the DMV or, you know, or or something on your job or working on a car. I mean, you just spent the whole day doing something. And at the end of the day, you realized that it was completely unnecessary, that you just wasted the entire scope of that day. How frustrating is it when you come to that realization that you've wasted it? Now, what if you come to the end of a life and at the end of your life, you look over everything that you've ever done all that you've ever given yourself to, everything that you've invested in, everything that's been important to you, and you look over everything that you've done within that life, achievements, acquirings, everything, and God's assessment of that life is that life was an absolute wasted life, that you were successful in the eyes of men, but in the eyes of heaven, in the eyes of God, that life was a total waste. I would imagine that there's probably not much more painful than to come to that realization when when you die and God says, you fool, because of the things that you chose to give yourselves to and and the things that we chose not to give ourselves to. I just read with my children Revelation chapter 18. We're working our way through and we're almost there. We got two chapters left and we'll have made it through the Bible uh, again, you know, and um, we're getting excited. But we did 18, Revelation 18. And to go through and read that chapter And it's such a gift from God that he laid out for us on the pages of scripture the ultimate end of every material thing that exists in this world. Read Revelation chapter 18 and find out what happens to every diamond, every gold coin, every article of clothing, every perfume, every body, every face that's made up, everything. Read what happens at the end of it in Revelation chapter 18. Now to live your life for those things, And then to read what happens to it there, to recognize that, hey, if that's what I've lived my life for, what a depressing thing to realize that I've got nothing. Tragic thing. The soul of man is unlike anything else that exists in all of the universe. The human soul is one of, and I only say one of because I don't know everything that exists, but it's one of the only things that exists that has an unlimited capacity. As much as you put into a human soul, it can expand that much more. That's why people are never satisfied no matter what. See, I know something about this rich man that he didn't even know about himself. That if he had succeeded in tearing down the bards and building bigger, he still wouldn't have been satisfied. Even once he got that, there would have been something greater, something better for him to acquire. Because man's soul cannot be satisfied with that which is temporary. And thus, in order for the soul to be satisfied, ultimately, it needs a source that is eternal. And there's only one of those that I know of. The only eternal source that exists in all of the world is God himself. That's it. That's the only thing that can satisfy a life. And that's what we were designed for. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God said to the people, he indicted them. He said, my people have committed two evils. 
Number one, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. A fountain is eternal, it's lasting, it's flowing. And he said, number two, instead of the fountain, they've hewn themselves out cisterns, containers, broken cisterns, broken containers that can hold no water. God says your lives are empty because you've made these barns. You've sought to fill your life with things, but there's only one thing that can ultimately satisfy. It's me. And when you find me, that's when you'll begin to understand satisfaction and what life is all about. And so Jesus says, beware of covetousness because it deceives the soul into thinking that it's satisfied when in fact it is not. And you'll come to the end of a life and realize I've wasted my life seeking to acquire what I can't keep and what doesn't ultimately satisfy. Well, Jesus now applies this parable in verses 22 through 34, and I'm thankful for this. He gives us two lists. He says, first of all, these are the things not to live for. And then he says, these are the things that you should live for. And so notice what he says in verse 22. It says that he said unto his disciples, therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for the body, what you shall put on. So food and clothes right off the bat to live for those things, total waste. The life is more than meat and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens for they sow, neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn and God feeds them. How much more are you better than the fowls? And which of you with taking thought can add to his stature one cubit? Can any of you make yourselves taller, Jesus is saying, by worrying about it? Or can you grow yourself? You can't grow. You can't make that happen. If you then be not able to do that thing which is least, why do you take thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They don't toil. They don't spin. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And seek not ye what you shall eat or what you shall drink, neither be ye of a doubtful mind constantly thinking, well, this isn't going to work out and God's not going to take care of me and I'm the exception to the rule. Everyone else will be blessed, but I will ultimately be destitute. Everyone else will be married, but I myself, I will be single. And you know, God says, don't be of a doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your father, he's not even your governor or your economy. He's your father. And he knows that you have need of all these things. So God says, do not give yourself and the energy of your life to the acquiring of these things that are temporary and don't satisfy, but rather, verse 31, seek ye the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide for yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail, where no thief approaches and neither uh, moth corrupteth. And so the things that we're not to live our lives for, but the things that we are to live our lives for is that we're to live to fulfill God's purposes for our lives. 
and that we're to live in confidence that he will take care of us and that we're to live simply in a manner wherein we can store up treasures uh, for ourselves in the world to come. And the reason why we're to live that way, according to verse 34, is he says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so the warning from Jesus, understand that you've got one life to live. And if you live that life with the goal in mind that you're going to be wealthy, or that you'll be satisfied with what you acquire or what you attain in this world, then that's a wasted life. And the ultimate end, you'll say like Saul, I have played the fool. Don't do it. He says, beware of covetousness. The fifth warning that Jesus gives in verses 35 all the way up through verse 48 is a warning to us that we're to be ready for his second coming. Notice what he says in verse 35. He says, let your loins be girded about and your lights burning and you yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding that when he comes and knocks they may open unto him immediately. Now we know and understand very fully that Jesus has promised that he will be coming again. John chapter 14, those famous verses, verses 1 and 2, where Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, you believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And Jesus will come, even as he said. And so what is to be our attitude and our mentality as Christians towards that second coming? What Jesus says here, he says, let your loins, first of all, be girded about. Now, in those days, it was common for both the men and the women to wear robes. That's what they would wear, linen robes. It would keep them cool. It would keep them covered. But if you're wearing a robe and you want to run, you've got a little bit of a problem. So in order to run, they would have to gird, what they'd say, gird up their loins. They'd hike up the robe a little bit and they would hold it right above the knees. And that would free their legs up so that they would run without tripping and without dragging the excess fabric and the dirt as they went behind them, getting it caught on rocks and roots and all the rest. And so the idea is of girding up your loins is that you're ready to go at the drop of a dime. That as soon as the knock comes and Jesus says, here I am, you're already set to go. You don't have to say, oh, wait, what? Wait, oh, oh, uh, where am I? Oh, where am I going? No, you're ready to go. Your loins are girded. And second of all, your lights are burning. What does the light do? A light illumines the environment around you. It shows you where you are and allows you to have perspective concerning where you are at any given moment. So in the context of being ready when he comes and knocks, he wants us to be ready to go on the drop of a dime and he wants us to be aware of what's going on in the world around us that we might understand that that knock is imminent and when that knock might come. And then he comments on that by saying in verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find watching. Verily, I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. How amazing is that? Here we give our lives to the service of the Lord, and he is Lord, and we are not. And yet he says that the day will come, if we're watching and waiting, that when we arrive in his kingdom, he'll sit us down, and he'll begin to serve us. And then he says, and if he shall come in the second watch, 
or in the third watch, meaning that if it takes longer than you would initially expect, and it seems as though the time is moving even slower in regard to his return, and you're saying to yourself, when will he come? Will he even come? He says, if that happens, and then he finds you so, that is watching, then blessed are those servants. And this know, now a parable, that if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man comes at an hour when you think not. Now it's an interesting little parable that Jesus gives concerning this. It's the parable of a thief coming in the night. And there are two different responses to the surprise visitation of a thief. The first response is the person that wasn't expecting it and that wasn't ready. And so the person whose house is broken into in the middle of the night and they weren't ready for a thief to come, that person is shocked. They're scandalized. They're frightened. Their life is changed forever. Their whole disposition is different from that day forward because they feel like they've been violated and they were vulnerable and they didn't know about it. It's a, it's a very confusing place to be. It's a painful place to be. But think about the person who is ready for the thief when he comes. It's a totally different response that that person's going to have. It's like Kevin McAllister. Have you seen Home Alone? He knew that the thief was coming, right? That these guys were coming and he was ready for them. And so the person that's ready, put yourself in those shoes. If I knew that a thief was going to break into my house and I knew exactly when it was going to happen and I was ready for it and how he would enter and the whole thing, boy, would he have a surprise coming to him. He wouldn't have a successful visitation and I wouldn't be shocked, scandalized, or have my life changed forever because I was ready for it. And so you can see that there's two different responses to the same thing, Jesus likening it unto his second coming. Those that are not ready will be shocked and that will be their experience. But to those that are watching, to those that are ready for his return, it will be a totally different experience. Now, I love the Apostle Peter because he does probably what I would have done. He tries to trap Jesus into giving away the timing of the return. Watch this, verse 41. It says, Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable to us or even to all? In other words, Lord, is this something that just applies to us in our lifetime? Or are you just saying this in general, that this will apply to everyone in every generation? Lord, are you going to come back in my lifetime? Peter essentially asking. Or is this for the generations that are to come sometime down the road in the future? Jesus will have none of those trappings. <laughs> he will not be put back into that corner. So here's what Jesus does, and I love this even more. is that What he does is he answers the question that Peter should have asked. And it becomes kind of a game of jeopardy here because Jesus gives an answer altogether different than what Peter asked for. What Peter should have asked Jesus in that moment is, Lord, what should we be doing while we're waiting? And that's the question that Jesus answers starting in verse 42. Notice, it says that the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. 
of a truth, I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. There's three words in those two verses that you got to notice. They unlock it. Number one is steward. Number two is servant. And number three is doing. The answer is this. What are we to be doing while we're waiting for the Lord to come? Are we to be gazing up into heaven and saying, Jesus, is it today? Is it right now? Are you coming? What Lord is it now? No, no, no. He says this. He says, you're to be aware of the times and ready to go on the drop of a dime. But what you're to be doing while you're waiting is you're to be governing the stewardship that God has given to you. And he's very generic in that explanation. And here's why. Because every one of us has a very different stewardship between ourselves. But God has given every one of us something to do. He's given every one of us gifts and talents in the sphere of influence in a place where we're to serve him storing up treasures for his kingdom and building his kingdom while we're waiting for him to return. So a steward who is serving and who is doing his Lord's will, that's what we're to be about. And thus, here's what Jesus is asking of you and me right now. He's saying, I want you, my people, to be both living as though I could come at any second, ready to go right now. And I want you to be serving as though I might not come for a hundred years. And what I found is that is a very difficult balance to maintain. Because when I'm ready for him to come, I get senioritis. I get a case of the Fridays, you know, where it's like, I don't really feel like doing anything. Jesus is coming back. But once I start serving and I'm really into the things of God and building his kingdom and ministering, then I forget that he might come at any minute. But Jesus says, I want both your loins girded and your lights burning. That's my will for you, for my people. Be ready at any moment. Don't get caught off guard, but be serving and giving yourselves completely to what it is that I've called you to do. What if not? What if I can't do that? Verse 45. But, and if that servant say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming. So the loins aren't girded. The lights burn, or no, the light's not burning. The loins might be girded, but the lights aren't burning. He says, my Lord delays his coming and he shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens and to eat and to drink and to be drunken. Then the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looks not for him and in an hour when he is not aware and will cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. I'm not sure if that's the unbelievers in Christ or the unbelievers, those that just didn't believe that he would come back. Uh, They were unbelievers concerning his second coming uh, and all the rest. But Jesus says this. He says that it is important that you maintain both of those things. Eternal motivation is a proper motivation for the service that we perform for the Lord. To say, Jesus is coming back, his reward is with him, and therefore I must be diligent to be doing what I've got to be doing. If the second coming is not important to me, then my tendency is going to be to drift into worldliness and compromise. Brutality, drinking, being drunken, treating people the way I shouldn't be treating them, that's a byproduct of not being ready for the Lord's immediate return. And he says, And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. Do you see that there's two things there? He says, He prepared not himself, meaning that he wasn't prepared for the second coming, neither did according to his will. Do you see both there? Prepared himself, be ready for Jesus to come. Neither did according to his will, the stewardship of what we have. It says that he'll be beaten with many stripes. And he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes, he shall be beaten with few stripes. 
For, whoso, for unto whomsoever much is given of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. And so each one of us will be evaluated upon our entering into the kingdom of God. And the apostle Paul says that there will be some who spent their lives in things of wood, hay, and stubble, that their reward will be burned up and they will suffer loss. And there will be others that built their lives upon a foundation of Christ with gold, silver, and precious stones, and that they will be rewarded with a crown that is everlasting and enduring. But the Bible says that we will be evaluated according to the gifts and the stewardship that each one of us has been given. And to whom much has been given, the more will be asked and the more will be required. And so it's important for us that if we would have an abundant entrance into his kingdom, that we be watching, that we be waiting, and that we be working for his name's sake. The final warning that he gives in the closing verses of the chapter uh, is a warning concerning being on the right side of God's judgment. Jesus says, am I come to send fire, or I am come to send fire on the earth? And what will I if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am straightened or restricted until it be accomplished. Now, the fire of God in the Bible symbolizes two separate different things. Number one, it symbolizes the fire of Pentecost. And that fire was connected to the cross, which Jesus references through the baptism that he would be baptized with. And it wasn't until he was crucified that the fire of Pentecost or the fire of the Holy Spirit could be given. And so there is a demographic or a group of people within the world that will fall under, or better said, the fire of Pentecost will fall upon them. But there's a whole nother group of humanity that will experience the other fire that is contextually spoken of by Jesus. And that is the judgment that's to come. That when the earth ultimately is judged the second time, it will be judged by fire, according to to, to Peter. It says that all of the elements will melt with a fervent heat and the fire of God's wrath will be poured out on those that reject and deny. And so the cross brought forth two different fires for two different groups of people, the fire of Pentecost on those that believe and the fire of God's judgment upon those that don't believe. And thus Jesus applies by saying, suppose ye that I am come to give peace upon the earth. I tell you no, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son and the son against the father and the mother against the daughter and the daughter against the mother and the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I wonder if someone said, Lord, we get it. (laughs) And he said also to the people, he said, when you see a cloud arise out of the west, straightway you say there is coming a shower. And so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be heat and it comes to pass. You hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. But how is it that you do not discern this time? And he's speaking of his presence among them and what it is that he came to do, to call a people unto salvation by grace through faith. He says, yea, even why or and why, even of yourselves, judge ye not what is right. Understand that there are two sides of God's judgment that you can be on. You can be on the forgiven side, the saved side, 
wherein you can receive the fire of Pentecost and you can be the two in one household. Or you can be on the other side of that and you can deny that I am who I am and that I came to do what I came to do. And you can abide under the fire of God's judgment. You can be the three, the other three in that household or the mother or the daughter or so on and so forth. And then the final warning that Jesus gives concerning those, as we close, consider, that still yet abide under the condemnation of God, that have yet to come into that place of salvation, Jesus says this. He says, when you go with your adversary to the magistrate, to the judge, as you are in the way, while you're still on your way to court, give diligence that you may be delivered from him, lest he hail thee to the judge and the judge deliver you to the officer and the officer cast you into the prison. I tell you, you shall not depart thence until you have paid the very last might. Tune in as we close and understand this. That for those men and women that live this life apart from Christ, that you have yet to confess him in the context that Jesus describes, in coming under the banner of his salvation, you abide under the judgment of God and you are the adversary of Jesus himself. He has a bone to pick with you. He has contention with you and you have a debt to pay because of your sin. You're indebted to God. And what your life is right now, if you're apart from Christ, is that you are walking on your way to stand before a judge. That's where you're ultimately headed. Do you realize that? That when you breathe your last breath, you will stand before the judge of all the universe. And Jesus will be the prosecuting attorney and the plaintiff. And you will be on defense and you'll have to stand on your own. And you will have to give an account for every sin that you have ever sinned. Not only that you've denied Christ, but you'll give an account for everything that you have ever done. Every thought, every deed, every action. From the time that you were a child until you breathe your last, even if you live to be an old man, you will answer for every sin because there is nothing you can do to purge and put away your own sin. And when the gavel falls down and the condemnation of God is declared because you're found guilty of your sin, you will be hauled off to an eternal darkness and separation from God. And the only way to get out of that prison of separation from God is if somehow you can pay off that debt in full, every last might. But understand that from that prison, you cannot earn even one might to be able to pay that off. And you will live in an eternity separated from God. However, what Jesus is calling us to in this final warning is he's saying, listen, discern, think, consider, understand who I am, what it is that I came to do. And right now, set yourself in a place where you're willing to humble yourself before a holy God where you're willing to lay down your sin at the foot of his cross, where you're willing to confess that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself, but that you're willing to receive his forgiveness and his salvation and agree with him while you're in the way with him. Don't wait until you stand before the judge in the courtroom. And what happens when a person comes to Christ and they receive his forgiveness and his salvation is that they move from being under the judgment of God's fire to being brought under the fire of God's Pentecost. You go from being his adversary
to being his associate, from being his foe to being his friend, from being a sinner to becoming a son or a daughter or a servant. That's what he is bidding us to discern and to realize and come to terms with that we might be on the right side of God's judgment. And understand this, if perhaps you're here tonight on a Wednesday night in a church, which is very weird if you're an unbeliever here tonight, but it's possible. God brought you here tonight for such a time as this to hear this message. And if today the voice of the Holy Spirit is coming behind the words of a fallen, flawed preacher and bearing witness within your heart that these things are true, then for you, today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart as in the provocation. Don't say, I'll deal with this later when I have a convenient season because you may never have, even if you live for another 50 years, you may never have another time again where God the Holy Spirit comes this close and puts his finger right upon the issues of life and death within you in the deepest place and says, please come out of darkness and into my light. It isn't necessary for you to go into a Christless eternity separated me from me forever. It isn't necessary that you stand before one day a judge who says, you fool, for you've lived your life for things that don't matter and you've never confessed me before men and therefore you will be denied access and entrance into my kingdom It was paid for. You didn't have to. May God, if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ, may God give you the courage to make a confession of Christ that you might be saved. And may God's Holy Spirit bring conviction upon your life that you might understand and recognize the severity and the seriousness of these things and the days that we live in. And so, Father, we pray right now as we conclude this chapter that's filled with warning and admonition not of a wrathful God, but of a loving Father and a gentle Savior. And Lord, your will and desire is always to give to us the ways of life that we might be saved, that we might know you in truth, that we might call upon you in the day of our trouble and know that we have access and that you'll hear us. And Lord, you are an ever-present help in time of trouble. And so we're asking tonight that you would take these things that we've heard, the things that are written upon the pages of your word, And that, Father, you would make them a part of our life. And, Lord, that these warnings would be for us a light and a joy and as honey to our soul. And so, Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name. If there's anyone here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ personally, I would invite you at this time just maybe to raise your hand or maybe to stand up. If you would just say, I want to confess Jesus Christ personally. I want to make him my Lord tonight. If you're not here and I realize that maybe it's just one or two of you, if any, or maybe there's more. But if you're here tonight and you need to make Jesus your Lord, and this is a night that you need to stand and say, I need to be on the right side of God's judgment, I would just invite you to somehow just indicate that. Make that, let me see you in some way, whether you stand or whether you raise your hand. I'd like to pray with you and give you that chance to receive him and to allow your name to be written in heaven. Is there anyone here tonight before we close that wants to give their life to Jesus Christ? Let's stand together and let's close in song then.